Hello and welcome to the Classroom Critics Podcast, a podcast by teachers who secretly wish they were film studies students at one point. My name is Bill Ivers. I'm joined today with uh, two esteemed colleagues, Mr. Michael Mulvey and Mr. Walter Freeman. Welcome, gentlemen. Hello. Thanks. Today we're going to discuss a uh, little film you may have heard of called Star Wars. Um, a film for me personally, um, I really identify it with uh, my upbringing, my child, my childhood. Um, and uh, today we'll point out some of the uh, the merits of the film, the story, the characters, um, directorial techniques, and anything we have to say about it. So, um, I don't know. Let's let's just share some of our, our personal memories of the film and, and you know what it meant to us when we were younger. And you know, for me, again. Uh, I was, you know, not, I was a baby when it first came out, so I really don't remember it initially. Um, but certainly, when I was a little bit older, the um, you know the following movies, uh, you know, I remember actually going to see for the first time uh, *Return of the Jedi* in the in the theater, and it was one of my early film-going experiences that I can I can kind of remember. But I just remember just getting the toys and just it being just a, just a really huge thing, and it's just one of those cultural phenomenons that I really identify with my, my, my childhood personally. But what about you? Any, any memories? Any? Oh, I do, yeah. When I was 10 years old, that's when it came out. And there was only one theater in Nashville at the time. Well, actually, there were a couple, but the one down at the National Mall was where it showed. I remember, um, I don't remember going to see it. <clears throat> I remember having a T-shirt from it that I wore all the time that summer and wore it to the beach because we vacationed at Hampton that summer. Mm-hmm. One thing I didn't do was buy the figurines, and I always kick myself for not having done that. Maybe a but, rich man. Yeah, exactly. Especially if I kept them in the box. But you know, I just yeah, I went to go see all those sequels as well. And you know, I remember waiting with anticipation for the first of the prequels to come out. You know, and counting the days, like a hundred days down or whatever, to get to that point or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know. So it was definitely something that resonated in my, my life as well. I think it's a perfect movie as far as that goes. It's entertaining. It's smart. It's fun. You know, it's everything, everything that a movie should be, mm-hmm. you know. Absolutely. I'm the elder statesman of the group, so I remember seeing it when I was 17. I was a junior in high school, and I uh, just remember everyone becoming obsessed with it. It was just we had never seen anything like it. Um, and I remember going to see it repeatedly, and it was the first movie I uh, ever bought the soundtrack to. It was a double album, and I remember owning it, and the only two tracks I ever played on it were the opening theme and the cantina, the, the jazz piece. So uh, it was just a phenomenal, and, and um, Star Wars, as I said, came out when I was a junior in high school. By the time Return of the Jedi came out, I had uh, already moved away from home. I was living in Virginia, and so that kind of was... That movie was that arc of my life where I was going from living at home to being on my own, and just uh, just remember it was a, a tremendous film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And which kind of brings us to I think uh, something to address off the bat here is why is the film considered such a phenomenon? Like, what about it? I mean, obviously, film history is filled with many great films, but there aren't many that sort of transcend the, the genre and become, you know, borderline a religion, you know, mm-hmm. for a lot of people. I mean, the, this film means a lot to many, many people. Well, I think it appeals to that type of, you know, for lack of a better term, nerdy guy that, you know, loves outer space and, you know, like all of that type of thing. But also, <clears throat> I think, you know, when stuff, reading about things about the film, you know, it, 
it's filmed as a classic western, so it has a classic storyline of a film, and you know it genuinely appeals to all types of people because there's a strong female character, there's you know strong male characters, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not just one you know gender that's going gravitating towards it. Um, perhaps it was you know I think there's an element of every little boy's fantasy type of thing to kind of go around and shoot you know weapons or whatever like that, but. I think for the most part it has universal appeal, you mm-hmm. know. I mean, I think the first prequel that came out, I felt like while I was watching it that I was just essentially watching a video game, but it didn't feel like that with Star Wars. I felt like it had a good story behind it, you know, that there was care taken to the movie itself mm-hmm. to tell a genuine story and, you know, to kind of be a classic film at the same time. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to start with the story, right? I mean, it's just a, a timeless <clears throat> fantastic story you know uh, I'm sure we'll get into it more but it really uh, carries on that hero tale monomyth mm-hmm. tradition that seems to resonate with every every culture and uh, Star Wars at least with you know in modern times kind of does it better you know than, than lots of other stories and um, uh, what, what about you Mr. Freeman? Well I just found it was interesting because it was both familiar and pioneering at the same time. Like you had said, it's a classic Western. That's one of the things I remember my mom was the first thing she said to me after the Han Solo shootout with Greedo in the bar, says this is just a Western. And when I went back, I started looking at those elements of the film and saying, you know, okay, this is your typical story. This is your hero journey, your archetype character, but we'd never seen it in this universe before. And, and I remember seeing specials on how Lucas filmed... Um, the the aerial sequences, the the dogfights, and yet he was pioneering camera techniques. You know, moving the camera past a still object to simulate movement, but he was basing his shots and angles on World War II dogfight films. So I think that it appealed to a lot of audiences because we saw things we'd never seen before, but yet it was also oddly familiar. And so there was a mass appeal. I mean, folks from my mom's generation could watch it, my generation could watch it, and we're all having you know something appealing to it about us mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. something appealing to us about it yeah right yeah well there's also the what the kurosawa influence as well <coughs> you know the characters were the japanese fairy tale the enchanted forest or something like that yep. so there was that you know kind of borrowing from other myth as well right you know and um you know it is classic classic mythology you know right right um the one you know one of the original concepts i guess um from what i've Read and heard uh, from in Luke, you know from Lucas in interviews that the original concept um, was this idea of looking at like this major revolution or, or rebellion in space from the perspective of seemingly minor characters. Uh, because if you think about it, the first whatever 15, 20 minutes of the film, it's really kind of from the perspective of two droids, and this idea that you can um, kind of get this. Um, you know this this story of uh, uh, of a larger picture, a larger rebellion from the from the eyes of two minor characters, and I believe that the Kurosawa film that he kind of nicked that from, at least initially, I think it was Hidden Fortress. I think is yeah. the is the uh, the film. Uh, could be mistaken on that, but uh, the idea in that film, uh, you have the, you know a couple basic you know basically slaves who are um, followed, and there's like this, this grander revolution happening around them. But of course, the the film um, is quickly handed off to uh, to you know becomes Luke's story. You know, obviously, you know, pretty soon after that. So, um, you know, what about Star Wars being released at this particular point? I think when it comes to um, great achievements, sometimes uh, timing makes all the difference. And I think Star Wars certainly was a uh, 
uh, recipient of great great timing during this uh, period, 1977. Um, as you said, uh, well, there was nothing like it at that time. Um, you know, what what was going on around this time uh, in the film world? You had referenced before we started recording that Spielberg had really established a summer blockbuster. You had, right. you, know, you, you cited Jaws and Close Encounters, and mm-hmm. you know the, the big studios were getting back to the thing. We need a very specific type of movie at this time slot, and um, Star Wars seemed to fit the bill. I mean, no one knew it was going to catch on the way it did, mm-hmm. uh, and I always maintain, you know, it was always intended to be a single film. And then when they realized they had a, a money pit, they were going to extend it, extend the universe, but. Um, it, it's the perfect summer film. It, it's it's compelling, but it's simple. You know, you eat popcorn and and you watch it, and um, you know it fit the bill. It wasn't one of those films they release around Christmas or one of those films they release in the fall. It's like a prestige picture, or whatever. exactly. Mm-hmm. It just uh, and yep. and yet it became one. Yeah, yeah. It got nominated for best picture and supporting actor, director, et cetera, et cetera. You know, when I show that film and compare I also show Annie Hall in the class and I always tell the kids Annie Hall actually won best picture over this and you know not to take anything away from Annie Hall or whatever but the kids are always kind of like you've got to be kidding me you know <laughs> and it just tell them that it said you know like 30 years from now you'll probably still be watching Star Wars but you know will you be watching Annie Hall again perhaps if you're that type of if you're a film buff of course but sure. you know it's not to again detract anything from Annie Hall but no, but if you look at the arc of films after that I mean um, everyone was trying to make another Star Wars right and Battlestar Galactica your little yeah. and Annie Hall's not a little film per se but it was it was not necessarily a, a yeah. giant studio there blockbuster there were 20 other Annie Halls afterwards or something and they, yeah they almost disappeared for mm-hmm. a while yep. it, it got to the point when the indie film movement came around it was new as opposed to being something that had mm-hmm. always been there right I mean you think about it, it's amazing that Star Wars <clears throat> was ever made you know if you think of all the, the back history behind the film um, you know at this time you have uh just a very different film industry. You have lots of gritty crime dramas, lots of, you know, real... Yeah, like Dog Day Afternoon or you yeah, know, yeah. Serpico, yep. things like that, yeah. You have Scorsese kind of... Um, <clears throat> yeah, Taxi Driver. Coming coming on the scene and, you know, Coppola with the Godfather films and, mm-hmm. you know, Charles Bronson and yeah. the Dirty Harry movies. Uh, they didn't, it didn't seem like a science fiction film would be... Um, would, would, would catch on. No, and I think Lucas and Spielberg always get unfairly kind of categorized as kiddie filmmakers. You know, right. I think it was Henry Yaglum that had actually said, you know, Steven Spielberg only makes pictures for children. Yeah. And I always tell the kids, Do you, have you ever seen a Henry Yaglum film? You know, so, you know, but you know, there's nothing again taking anything away from him. But I mean, you know, I think that it has the longevity attached to it as well. It's just that it's ingrained within. You know, the appeal of it is so ingrained within American culture to think of like the whole notion of frontier. Yeah. You know, that's in there as well. Yes. You know? And it's a classic American film. And it really, you know, it definitely shows like the best I think that Hollywood can put out as well. Right. You know? And the funny thing is, like, you know, you tell a little bit of backstories about it because originally the Han Solo part was offered to Al Pacino. Yes. Which is, you know, it's unbelievable that they even think of now. You know, <laughs> and of course, you know, because Harrison Ford's so iconic in that role, but. You know, yeah. the studio wanted a star. Right. You know. And wasn't Han Solo supposed to be a an alien creature? Very early drafts from my understanding. Right, um, right. And uh, I just remember, when was the last time, I mean, the, the summer blockbuster started the people waiting in line to see movies. Right. When was the last time you stood around the block right. to see a film? Yeah, and, I remember seeing yeah. pictures of, like, people waiting in line for, like, The Exorcist. 
you know, and I remember going to the movies and being, you know, I have a vivid memory of standing in the rain to go see, I think it was The Rescuers, the Walt Disney the animated film. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you don't do that anymore. Now you can reserve your seats, <laughs> you know. And even back then, I, I mean, seeing some footage of people waiting in line uh, for Star Wars in 1977, I mean, you, you see people dressing up as characters mm-hmm. even back then. Right. Which um, I'm not sure if, if there's any precedent for that around this time. For any other film prior for, to that time? Prior to that, yeah. yeah. What's always neat to me, though, is when you see a film like they, they came out now, Star Wars did it, Jaws did it, Close Encounters did it, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark did it. There was no anticipation because there was almost no hype to these films. No. Um, once they became established, then every sequel you know, mm-hmm. was so hyped that nothing could live up to the expectation. But when you go into a film with no expectation and you get blown away by what's on the screen, that is a very rare event, especially yeah, today. Yeah, like you get a bottle, yeah, yeah. definitely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what was science fiction at this time? I mean... Uh, Science fiction was often. 2001. I mean, yeah. I mean, that was a, uh, you know, I think an exception of being mm-hmm. a, you know, a, a great. Um, yeah, there were these cheesy first-rate movie, you know. but most of the, most most science fiction was yeah, it was like Plan was, Nine from Outer Space or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Like you know. real shoddy, um, mm-hmm. horrible special effects. You know, Roger Corman yeah, stuff. You know, I think Lucas is responsible for revolutionizing special effects in film, especially sound technology, it's amazing. You know, the, what he's, the legacy that he has for that is just phenomenal. Yeah. Right. You know? Just paying really close attention to the, the realism of, um, of this world. Right. You know, you, no longer can you see the zippers and the costumes of, of the creatures and, you know, or the strings mm-hmm. from the, you know, hanging from the, uh, that the spaceships hung from. You know, it's, it's, um, well, that's what you I, can believe I, that world. That's what I thought was lost in the in the prequels was that this was not an inhabited world. This was a world that characters walked in front of and talked. It was a green screen world. Whereas in Star Wars, and then I think the new one, The Force Awakens, they, they show the world as it's as it's being yeah, lived. Yeah, people living a daily yeah. life. Little yeah. shots like those um, in, in The Force Awakens, those those Tie Fighters coming across the lake and they're skimming on the top of the water. Mm-hmm. It just just shows there's an interaction to this universe that I, I think went missing. But some folks out there are going to take umbrage at you calling this a science fiction film. That is true too. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, technically, uh, I mean, it's fa- you know fantasy, fantasy right? Genre. It's fantasy, uh, especially mm-hmm. you know, with the with the force element that gives it a kind of a mystical quality. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are some hardcore science fiction fans who you know, have to you know believe that it has to be rooted in in hard science to be considered a science fiction film. Mm-hmm. I just think it's another thing, back to a point, you, you can never see Star Wars for the first time again, and I don't know if you can because, you know, if you're raised in the generation that sees the prequels first, you're going to then get to these films and, and very clearly made in a different time period with different technology, and, you're, you know, you're going to scratch your head going, well, that's, you know, that's like sort of a devolving quality of filmmaking, and it's mm-hmm. not when you see it. Yeah. Original. I think it's so ingrained within our culture, though, that I think that even though I think there's a lot of kids who haven't seen it, you know, they, they might have picked it up on a cable, you know, network at some point or another, but even still haven't sat down and watched the full film. Right. It's like whenever I show Godfather and, you know, everybody knows so much about Godfather, but, you know, have you ever sat down and watched it unedited, uninterrupted, you know, same likewise exactly. as Star Wars, you know, right. and, you know, think of like how much it has been, you know, parodied. You know, we were talking earlier about the Bill Murray, you know, song or whatever. Um, you know, also, like, even within the everyday vernacular, you know, like, you walk into a bar, you see a bunch of odd-looking people, you say, this is like the bar in Star Wars. You know? <laughs> so, I mean, you know, there's definitely, you know, that type of 
part, you know, that has become part of American culture and American folklore too. You know, so I think that there's a built-in audience for kids, regardless if they haven't, you know, if they did see the prequels first. I think we're kind of spoiled in that we didn't. You know, right. yeah, thankfully. Yeah. Um, but I mean, even even the fact that the difference between seeing the film for the first time on a, on a widescreen TV versus a forty foot movie screen. Right. I mean, there's just something about sitting in a theater mm-hmm. with that larger than life aspect. The sound, as you were right. saying, surrounding you. I mean, I remember going with a friend of mine to see um, Bride of Frankenstein back in the movie theaters, and it's so phenomenal on the big screen. Whereas on the small screen, it comes across very it's differently. Kind of silly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, one of the, the, the comic relief characters are just strident and right. shrill, as opposed to on the big screen where. Where you're just so overwhelmed by the size of it, and I think Star Wars should be seen that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and from what I understand too, Lucas sent all representatives when the pre- uh, prequel, The Phantom Menace, was coming out, that each theater that wanted to show it had to prove that their sound was worthy, essentially. <laughs> you know, and, you know, good for him. I mean, you know, to demand that high quality of stuff as well. I think that you know, one thing that's benefited from that is the quality of theaters that we have too. You know, the much better. You know. I took when we took the kids to go see Star Wars: The Force Awakens for the field trip. You know, it wasn't in a 3D theater. And I, I saw it again in a 3D theater, in the, with the 3D glasses, and I was amazed. You know, at the technology of that. No, you know, it's, the, it's the enhancement of it. It was awesome. Yep. So it's a lot more fun. I think it's fascinating too that <clears throat> Star Wars. You know, before Star Wars, Lucas had made American Graffiti, right? And that's such a, a, a human film. It's you mm-hmm. know about a time and, and, and people in that time. And then, you know, that carried over, I think, to the original Star Wars. There, These are characters existing in this universe with these struggles, and you're really related to them. I think a lot of that kind of got lost uh, over time. Yeah. Sure. With the you franchise. see Luke's, you know, Luke's character having an aunt and uncle who, you know, raised him and cared for him and, you know, whom he lost. So, you know, he was a real person, you know. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, um, Lucas, I mean, he, he will claim in interviews, and it's... You know, there's evidence of him being um, someone interested in, in small, you know, intimate films, art, artistic films, and, and even films that don't necessarily have a narrative. A lot of his you know, projects in, co- in college and film school were just, you know, almost like what he would call film poems. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, American Graffiti kind of went more into the com- commercial realm. And then, um, so yeah, it, he makes the claim that when he was making Star Wars that it was really kind of out of character for him to be making a film like that and of course his career went in a very different direction after that but um, at first he was kind of like a like a film school brat making making little films who well, just who came of you know came of age at the perfect time too as far as the you know 70s being the age of the director or the decade of the director right you know like Coppola and you know Scorsese and right. you know, Spielberg and as I was saying earlier it's it's really amazing the film you know, got made because uh, no one wanted to make it. Uh, he just came upon um, a producer who championed him, Alan Ladd Jr., mm-hmm. uh, who said, you know, George, I, I don't understand your movie. Um, <laughs> I really don't, but I, I, I believe in, in you as a director, mm-hmm. you know, knowing his talent, see, having, having seen American Graffiti, which American Graffiti in its own right is a, is a very unique, different film for, for its time. And a great film, too. Yeah, it's, it's know, very, definitely. very good. And uh, and so he he got the backing and it, it didn't have he didn't have a uh, the budget that he wanted you know for even it, it wasn't it didn't have no budget but you know Star Wars obviously but it, he did feel kind of limited and restricted by the, the budget he did have but he you know obviously um, he did have a certain s- sense of autonomy with it too though which right. is good yeah that exactly he was able to kind of 
you know, because it was so low budgeted, you didn't have the, the pressure of having, you know, to make tons of money for the studio. And they, they released it, what was it, released in March of that year mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I always tell the kids, you know, when a movie's released in March, you know, <laughs> that's kind of like when the studio releases it so they can use it as a tax write-off. <laughs> you know, so, you right. know. Exactly. Uh, he also did, you know he also wasn't trapped into audience expectation too. He right. was controlling the narrative as opposed to satisfying a, a, a popular need, mm-hmm. which which I think maybe dampened some things later on. Uh, the, the, there were there were no expectations with the film. I mean, even the actors, and I, I do believe that it's been said in interviews by Carrie Fisher, Harrison Ford, and Mark Hamill that they were actually joking around the set, uh, not taking it as seriously as. You would think, you know, kind of like what what the hell are we making, kind of mm-hmm. thing. Uh, a lot of the British uh, crew, right, w- were you know taken aback by that. We're just you know chattering and saying, you know, this is what is this garbage? Mm-hmm. Um, and Lucas himself uh, was, you know, feeling the stress and, and everything, um, not sure of what he was doing, um, or, or not not certain of, of the success of it. Ended up in the hospital at one point due to exhaustion, um, and uh, so there was a lot going against it uh, at this time. Isn't it true that you know, on one hand, Alec Guinness was was sort of dismissive of the film, but didn't he take some back end of the gross and ended up making just an absolute <laughs> fortune off the film? Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is funny. He saw something there. I mean, you know, he, yeah. he's he's not a shrewd enough to have done that. Yeah, yeah he's he's been around. Well, Spielberg benefits from it too, from what I understand too. They they had a deal that where they get I think like one percent of each other's film grosses or whatever. Oh, yeah. So each has made, you know, a fortune off of each other's films as well. Yeah. You know, like they need to get richer than they are. But right. yeah. <laughs> uh, Alec Guinness has said in interviews that he was talking to his friends during the filming of this saying, I I, I can't believe what what I'm doing right mm-hmm. now. You know, and, and and I guess he had to rewrite a lot of the dialogue because that is not one of George Lucas's strengths. Right. Uh, so he found himself rewriting uh, a lot of his own dialogue, and um, which I mean, if we want to get to the casting, uh, George Lucas, you know, really hit the sweet spot with this with this casting. Um, you know, Alec Guinness does give the film quite a bit of gravitas, wa- gravitas and weight. Yeah. You know, definitely. Right, and uh, you know, he certainly commands that role, and it's really appropriate, obviously, because you know the, the character Obi Wan being this. Um, this wizard, basically, this this uh, incredible, knowledgeable, old wizard that everyone respects, and of course, in real life, he was well respected as well as an actor. Mm-hmm. Well, I just when you, you look back <clears throat> on, the, on the mythology of Star Wars over it, you know, again, I'll compare. You, you go to the prequels, and every character must have a, a very lengthily explained backstory. You go back to the original, A New Hope. Obi-Wan's not in the film for very long. He right. doesn't say and do very much, but what he does looms so large, and that's the power of sort of the minimalist approach and the power of Guinness's performance. But he really isn't. There's, you know, how much screen time if you timed him between when he first appears? Say less than 10 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you never see him training Luke, ex- mm-hmm. except, for, except for the little ball in the helmet. They have that one scene that just says everything. Right. Yeah. You know, that, that plays against uh, uh, Han Solo's cynicism. But it's not like an in-depth scene. There, there's such so much shown instead of told, and, and mm-hmm. you know I love that about it. Yeah, I mean, is is there a single scene that uh, where Princess Leia and Obi Wan exchange any dialogue whatsoever? That you can think of. Not that comes to mind. They're staring out the front of the Millennium Falcon quite a bit, right? Uh, <laughs> they're all standing there. I mean, I've actually uh, mm-hmm. 
I've seen car shade protectors, you know, you put in your oh, windshield like that, of yeah. that scene. And But do they interact at all? I don't I don't think so. I mean, I could be mistaken, but I don't believe so. She she cries out to him in the hologram, right. but that's... Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, so there, There's a backstory there that we've never seen, like, you know... How did they come to know each other, et cetera? Well, the droids allude to, uh, you know, the princess isn't going to escape this time, mm-hmm. and then, then you know... She appeals to him. You're our only hope. So there, mm-hmm. there, there must be. And how something. did he go from being Obi Wan Kenobi to Ben Kenobi, the kooky guy who everybody kind of dismisses? You exactly. Know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So having not had the um, the opportunity to see this, you know, when it first, you know, was released, I was again just a, just a baby. But um, from what I hear, like my father, for example, you know, t- you know, reporting now as to like you know what really hit him what struck him when he first saw this film he always you know obviously what I always hear is just the impact of that first um, Star Destroyer you know just coming over the uh, the camera and it just seems to keep going and going and going and uh, that really floored audiences at the time uh, but I also hear a lot about um, you know one scene that everyone would talk about after after the fact uh, was the cantina scene now did you see the cantina scene uh, so uh, again, it's just tough to really put our, ourselves back during that time. But at least myself, I guess the cantina scene was a scene that really struck people. Mm-hmm. It was just bizarre, and nothing like it uh, had ever, you know, really been seen in film. What's funny about that scene, though, is that uh, George Lucas always would say that it, it was one of those scenes that his original vision wasn't even close to being realized. And if you actually kind of look at a lot of the characters. You can tell that he just found any alien costume from any other production. You know, I'm sure there's alien costumes from Battlestar Galactica. Actually, there's a, there's a, a Satan costume. Satan too. in there, and there's a NASA astronaut moving in the background. Did you know that? There's a little Easter egg in there. He's he's you just see him very briefly, just uh, just sort of sidling in the background. He's got a an Apollo spacesuit. Right, there. which goes to show you that I mean, a lot of the film um, is. Communicated and the impre- it's just through the music and the sound, you know, getting back to that. And 